it's a lizard folk shaman. What's the difference? <laughs> They're all scaly and green. One's right? got one eye, the other's got, you know, scales all over the place, whatever. Orcs have scales, right? But yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's what I hear. Sewers of New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 36 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about urban adventuring and city-based campaigns. But first, the party faces its first dragon in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, the shaman wields nature's fury in the character creation forge. Before we get to that, we do have a programming note. That's a first. (laughs) Well, we put it out on Twitter. We got some mostly positive feedback. We are going to start reviewing material from the Dungeon Masters Guild. Yeah, the reviews thus far are pretty unreliable. Uh, yeah. They're, uh, yeah. I'm tired of reading, oh, I love having 100 extra feats, five stars. All right, well, that doesn't tell me anything about what's inside. doesn't give me any idea of the quality of the power creep. Right. Did you try them out at all? Did you even read them or did you go, wow, 100 is a big number. And it's free slash, (laughs) you know, I gave a dollar. Right. So, yeah. So we're going to start reviewing them our way, which is basically us working on a rubric that's, you know, consistent and relevant to the things that we are looking for in Dungeon Masters Guild content. However, that does mean that we need Dungeon Masters Guild content. Yeah. So if you've found something that you love and you think it deserves extra attention, send it our way. We'll take a look at it, and if we like it, you know, we'll talk about it as well. Alternatively, if you've written content for the Dungeon Masters Guild and you'd like a little bit more exposure for it, we're happy to take a look as well. Yeah, so drop us a line at totalpartythrill at gmail.com or on Twitter at tptcast. All right, but let's get into the Morning Glory campaign. So last time, the party emerged from the desolation of Dolor, the Plain of the Dead, in a dark, cold lake in what they are assuming is the continent of dragons in Arganesson because they see the shadow of a dragon flying overhead. And as they watch, a herd of minotaurs runs out of the jungle and the dragon swoops over them, blasts them with a massive cone of cold from its mouth and they're all frozen solid and the dragon pounces on them and begins chomping on their bloody and frozen corpses. The party is floating in the middle of the lake and decides, uh, let's leave. Yeah, this is bad news. Brand was a dragon sorcerer and so had a lot of knowledge about dragons. So he was looking at this thing going, all right, judging by the size and the coloration of the scales, it's a silver dragon and I'm pretty sure it's like a, an older adult. Yeah. And also I knew at that point, dragons, not the nicest creatures on the planet. <laughs> yeah, in Eberron, so it's a silver and in traditional D&D, this means that it's good and playful and fun and wants to help people and likes turning into humanoids and having babies with them. Yeah, in Eberron, that means he likes to eat humanoids and keeps them as supplicants because <laughs> yeah. all dragons are jerks. <laughs> and color has nothing to do with alignment. Nope. <laughs> so the party says, okay, let's get out of here. But the dragon spots them and uses its breath weapon again on them. And so a triangular cone of the lake including much of the water that they are floating in is now frozen solid and they are many of them trapped however fortunately you've got a monk and a very strong paladin and a few others of you who can teleport so 
Most of you wriggle out or then smash the ice around the others. And look, voila, there's a bridge of ice leading to the shore. Yeah, I like, I like the idea of us sprinting along a bridge made of ice. It's, <laughs> it's super safe. Mostly it was, uh, maybe I'll just fly. Yeah. <laughs> Do not run in the pool area. <laughs> and then the monk who was like, is, wait, is this difficult? Right. Sorry. <laughs> Is I can do this on the water. It's like one leap. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the dragon is waiting for them on the shore. Although that doesn't really matter because Calic, the paladin, doesn't run away. Instead says, well, let's go kill this thing. Yeah, cube. Optimize <laughs> me. <laughs> so our Kenneth control cube slash vestiges of a deific being Primus, our sort of artifact that we've been carrying around, recomposes his molecular structure and turns him into a beast. Now, in hindsight, this is probably one of those things where I would have made sure that there was definitely a drawback every time this ability was used. It was very likely that there would be a drawback when this ability was used, but Jim, Calix player, just every time he uses the entire campaign, either had a positive outcome or a neutral outcome. Yeah, yeah. Just that particular dice roll loved him. And actually, so... In-game, Calic and Cube actually became pretty good buddies. Yeah, it was, a, it was a symbiotic relationship for sure. Yeah. But the result, right, was he chose the results of his D20 rolls. Given the choice, wouldn't you always choose to crit? <laughs> and in 5e, when you're a paladin, <laughs> yeah. you've got heavy spike damage. So very quickly, those smite crits took down an adult silver dragon i think it was one hit wasn't it didn't he it was one round oh okay okay yeah but i mean he was completely spent afterward yeah but still yeah it was hey i got this right uh then he just walks back (laughs) (laughs) while the rest of the party well not not everybody but most of the rest of the party was trying to hide in the trees which was a smart thing to do because while they were there they hear some rustling in the foliage and as they turn to investigate they find another dragon However, this one is much smaller, probably young, a blue dragon. And it looks at you and looks at Kalik and looks back at you and says, My name is Kankubar. I've been waiting for you. Yeah. 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 He looks at us and looks at Kalik and goes, Please don't kill me. <laughs> As for the party's response, we'll find out next week. So let's get into our main topic for the week. Urban adventures. So what exactly are they? Well, they take place in an urban environment, generally metropolitan, civilized areas, places where laws are in effect, where there's not as much open land, where you're in buildings and that sort of thing. Yeah. In old adventures or lots of computer role-playing games, the town is just sort of a glorified place to rest. You go to the inn, you go shopping, you wander around. Maybe you meet some NPCs and you talk to some quest givers with exclamation points over their heads. Right. You can't actually affect anything. You can't hurt anyone or kill anything. And you're sort of immune to all damage while you're there. Yeah, they're totally static. The only changes you're going to make are the completion of the quests that were provided to you by the specific NPCs who can provide you those quests. Right. But in modern tabletop RPGs, cities are really the most complicated and most dynamic environment that you can play a session or a campaign in. Yeah, the volume of NPCs goes up drastically. Mm Mm-hmm. There's not just the shopkeeper and the innkeeper and the barmaid. 
There are the various members of the Thieves Guild, the various members of the nobility, the various members of the town guard, the various members of all the different merchant houses and all of the shopping that you need to do, right? Depending on the size of the city, there could be 10,000 shopkeepers. Right. You've also got just the patrons of your tavern and probably other adventurers and 'er ne'er-do-wells and heroes and whatnot that are just moving about the street. You've got the various clerics, the various temples, all of these things, right? So if this sounds a bit overwhelming, we're going to try during this session to sort of break it down and help you figure out the best ways to plan sessions in cities and to plan how to play your character while you're in those situations as well. Exactly. Once you have a basic idea of how the whole engine works, right, you can generally replace a couple hoses if you need to. And it's one of the reasons that playing in a city environment is one of my favorite settings for a campaign. I love Planescape, which mostly takes place inside just one city. We obviously have talked about Eberron, and a lot of the most interesting things happen there inside very large cities. I mean, just basically Sharn. You guys could have gone to some of the other ones. Mostly you're like, eh, let's do Sharn. Oh, Stormreach. Also did Stormreach. Stormreach is cool, yeah. But there's so much support for all three pillars of play in city environments, which isn't something you can say about wilderness environments or dungeons. Yeah, I mean... That's one of the strong pulls of urban adventures and city environments for me as a player and and me as a GM is that I get to actually use all three pillars. You Mm -hmm. get social exploration and combat. Exactly. And it's actually one of the few environments where you're guaranteed to be able to use your social abilities to be able to have social encounters. I don't think it's a secret. You know, if you've been listening to the show long enough, you know that I love the social elements of games. So that's one of the things that bothers me about dungeons and wilderness you know hit or miss but dungeons especially when you're expected to go in kill stuff and leave uh, i want to talk to it (laughs) yeah if you're lucky maybe you can make one persuasion check to talk to the ghost of a long dead paladin or something yeah exactly let you pass but exactly but i'm never going to like complete my objective by convincing all of the cobbles to just up and leave yeah you know i mean that that would just invalidate the dungeon as a challenge and if and if you could do that then really you're playing in a kobold city you're not in a dungeon exactly yeah (laughs) one of the i think misconceptions about city environments is that there isn't really room for exploration that everything is already discovered but no city is fully explored there are police procedurals all the time where there are abandoned buildings or the cops go into the sewers to chase people in their hidden lairs there are i think almost more places that people don't know about or don't typically have access to than, for example, just the woods. Yeah, just take a map of the streets and you're basically looking at a dungeon map, right? Mm -hmm. Each building becomes a room in a dungeon, but you're basically looking at a giant sprawling dungeon with much more varied encounters available to you at each turn. And, of course, there are plenty of opportunities for combat. Not usually armies meeting across a plane, but the kind of combat that tabletop RPGs really excel at is small groups of enemies in close quarters and that's the kind of thing that you're going to get in a city yeah the one exception would be a siege right right and that's sort of a a different story arc of the social dynamic of surviving a siege right because that's that's a totally different game which is actually a great thing to throw at your city once your players have really become established there and they now like the city almost becomes another npc and they 
they have ties to it. Yeah, if the city is truly living and breathing with NPCs, it takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. If your party is very combat-based and they're sort of rolling their eyes at being stuck in a city all the time, just watch a few born identity movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just let them make plenty of enemies who are sending guys after them. Yeah, go it. watch Burn Notice. Yeah. And like... just see the kinds of things you can do when you're stuck in one city. Exactly. <laughs> So one of the actual great things about being stuck or at least spending most of your time in one location is that your players can really affect the setting. Unlike those wilderness and dungeon environments that they're usually sort of wandering through or past and then never seeing again or, you know, wrecking, looting, and then leaving, players can see the long-term effects of all of their actions. So make sure you're taking advantage of all the stories and plot hooks that you're not going to be able to use in other parts of your campaign. Yeah, that's kind of the joke of the moral quandary in a dungeon, right? It's like, whether you do the good thing or the evil thing, who's going to know? You're never coming back and you're not leaving survivors, you know? So in a city, though, there's always a witness. Mm -hmm. There's always somebody around who has to pick up the pieces. If you leave a bunch of mercenaries dead in an alley, eventually somebody's going to discover those bodies and wonder why. And if you do spare them, well, they're probably going to get jobs. Right. And now you've got a mercenary company that you've got to deal with. And, you know, people talk. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your your reputation is important. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not playing a campaign where everything happens in one city or in cities, important events that happen elsewhere, the city is where those effects can really be seen by your players. So if previously they were in charge of running a battle and they lost on the front, then when they come back, They can see that the citizens are starving because the supply lines were cut off by the enemy or there are conscription teams forcing peasants to join the army. Yeah, or if you have led the town guard on some mission to clear the forest or something, what opportunists, what bandits might start raiding the city? Those Mm -hmm. types of things, if the guards leave, right? Things like that. And when bad things happen to a city they tend to be really, really bad because the scale is just much larger. This isn't some sort of 30-person village. Yeah, and the number of innocents is also quite large. Right. right? If, if there's a plague, that could be 10,000 people dead. Yep. A natural disaster can kill millions of people. Another way to think about this, you know, not every city is going to actually be stone-stacked buildings mm-hmm. and winding city streets, right? Thinking of elves living within a forest. The forest could also take on that element of being a city a much more natural environment but it has the same sort of elements that a human city would so if a fire sweeping through a human city is a disaster that needs to be averted that same natural disaster could befall other skinned environments yeah they don't cities don't come only in those different forms but definitely in different sizes as well and so the scale and the kind of threats then vary as well so you know you could have a castle keep but In a lot of settings, you have entire planet-wide hive cities. In Star Wars, you know, Coruscant is just one giant city. Well, that's the nice thing about Star Wars is that every planet is just (laughs) one one biome. One biome, right? Yeah. (laughs) And city is a biome now. (laughs) It it makes perfect sense that this entire planet would just be frozen. Right. (laughs) It never sees enough sunlight. (laughs) Habitable and tidally locked? Mm Mm-hmm. So with different kinds of cities and different sizes, the environment becomes so much more varied. Maybe you have a tower with a hundred different floors. In some places, that's called a skyscraper. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You could also have multiple, dozens of levels of bureaucracy that you've got to fight through, tons of red tape. And, you know, maybe your hundred thousand gold pieces that you found in the dungeon is chump change here. 
Yeah, you've probably got multiple classes of society as well. Mm -hmm. You're going to have more stratification. So the poorest of the poor, the dregs of society are going to be maybe in a shanty town. But then you've also probably got the impossibly rich. And then the day laborers and the artisans and the merchants and all of the different levels in between. They're all different groups to interact with. Yeah, that's another one of the great things is just the vast number of NPCs that you have available to you for all different reasons. The party may find out that they're not the biggest fish around. Right. You're very likely to have high level or just influential NPCs, uh, even though they're not necessarily going to be available to your PCs unless they earn that somehow. No, but that rumor is valuable too, mm -hmm. right? The idea that news spreads throughout the city. Right. That the heralds and town criers are spreading the rumors of deeds of your rivals or potentially you. Yeah, all that kind of information is much, not necessarily easier to find, but it is more available. Right. And so a party that is smart can figure out a way to find what they need, whether that's information just by going to taverns or, you know, a contact network. Or maybe it's just lore and they have to go to the library or the research university or just hire a scholar, you know, uh, armorers, all different types of hirelings. When you have more resources available to you, and in, in a lot of cities in a, on a big enough scale, anything that you can imagine is probably available for a price, mm -hmm. right? It can make up for the gaps in a party. So if you've got sort of skewed towards the lore master sage kind of characters, you can maybe hire the thugs <laughs> to be your muscle. Yeah, okay. or maybe just totally outsource all the combat in the campaign and right. just be those characters who point lawful authorities toward the culprit once you've discovered them. Right. And you like, be, you're done. You're the mastermind character. Yeah. Right? And the entire party could do that. Or, of course, the flip side, you could just be the brood squad. And every time you need more information, you just go talk to your team of tech priests or like your sages that you have in retainer. Yeah. And like they do all those things. Yeah. You have a handler, right? I yeah. mean, you're just going and doing jobs. <laughs> <laughs> it's an adventure a week around here. You don't need a dedicated healer. You go to the temple. You go talk to Doc. Yeah, or exactly. Or Q, who's, who's your requisition officer. Right. <laughs> yeah. All of this creates a persistent world, right? Mm -hmm. When you have so much social interaction, they begin to stack on top of each other. So the fact that you were nice to the bartender at that particular tavern yesterday means that maybe they have a plot hook for you today, right? Or they have that little bit of information to get you unstuck, or you can trust them with something mm -hmm. versus if you keep stepping on somebody, you make somebody your whipping boy, eventually they're going to rear back and, and fight. Yeah. Or maybe if you track down your adversary to a particular bar and you start a bar fight with witnesses around and you destroy a bar, well... It might not just be that bartender who now hates you. It could be every bartender in the city. Yeah, or at least in that district, mm -hmm. right? You might just be persona non grata in that area. Yeah, and, you know, maybe that bar was owned by the Thieves' Guild. <laughs> if you destroyed it, it's almost certainly owned by the Thieves' Guild. <laughs> and now so are you. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I love that because if you have a fight in you know the ruins of Osgiliath, nobody cares if you knock over a few pillars. Yeah, you go knock over a dungeon... That's what it's there for, yeah. right? It's there to keep out adventurers. It's meant to be torn down, but yeah. a city is meant to be built. Yeah. The pack of wolves doesn't care that like you were great friends or that you slaughtered the last pack of wolves. So how about item availability? Sort of ties into all those NPCs, right? If you've got a thousand armorers who work in this city, someone's got to have the thing that you need. So in a city, I usually just recommend don't track mundane gear. If every second doesn't count, they can get the rope somewhere. Right. And if it does need to count, 
you set those parameters of that part of the adventure, right? right? You take away their gear, you put the timer on, you you do whatever you need to do in order to make that a focus and a highlight. Yeah, exactly. And then here's an issue that, I mean, we sort of talked about in entire episodes before, but depending on your setting, are there magic item shops or places that you can buy particular kinds of tech or whatever it is? If there aren't, why is that? You know, if magic is a present thing in the universe and people know about it and it's not for some reason outlawed, then if you have 100,000 people living in a city and the best and brightest come from all around the countryside here and there's like a research university full of scholars and magicians, why is it that there isn't some kind of marketplace for these goods? You need a reason for why there isn't. And it might just be because they're really expensive, Mm -hmm. which means your magic item shop becomes the back door of the noble's house, right? (laughs) Once you find that item, your job is to go get it. Right. Or if you're buying 40K, it's because it's heresy to own them. Right. (laughs) It also throws a wrench in the usual pattern of healing and resting that encounter design is often based on when you have players in a city and at any point, if there isn't a reason for them not to, they could just leave whatever they're doing, walk six blocks over to the temple and get some healing or, you know, go back to where they live and take a nap. Yeah. And the key to limiting that is to put either time constraints to put rivals in their way. Mm -hmm. Or if you think of like a modern setting, if you get shot, you can't just go to the hospital right? because they're going to ask questions, right? (laughs) So you've got to go find a sawbones. So like, you know, the, the veterinarian that can help you out on the on the down low or maybe you're just playing a system where if you get shot you're probably dead right that's the other problem (laughs) but i will say as a gm i really like when players do have this sense that it's cool we can just go to we can go get healed after this as soon as it's done or if we need to we can we can get out of here because it means that usually they're more rested and they have their full capabilities when they are entering some sort of combat situation or a, a dangerous encounter and that means that you can just build them deadlier. Well, in systems like D&D, for sure, where the resource management, you know, PC resource management is Where, the, yeah, that timing and healing is, is right. sort of part of it. You know, in a game like Savage Worlds, it doesn't matter if you're in a city or <laughs> in the Old West, right? Uh, getting shot is getting shot, and you're going to have bullets. It's just a matter of how many are you going to be able to soak. And then being in a city is just really, okay, we don't have to have a healer in the party. We just go find a doc. Right, exactly. Cities also provide a great opportunity for the characters to get invested in their like home base. Literally invested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good place for all those excess gold pieces in D&D when you can't buy magic items and you're just collecting bounties and everything else and you're just like, what do I do with my gold? When you're brand and you start <laughs> using the magical river <laughs> to mint some gold for yourself. It's a great way for them to get emotionally invested as characters into the part of the city that they put down roots. But then it's also a way for them to sort of invest in their home base, to make it theirs, to build up its defenses, to build up its luxuries, to give them a place to rest and recoup a base of operations. Yeah, if you think about your party as a squad of superheroes, they've got a base. And I am often very surprised at the kinds of players who, like I wouldn't have guessed, are very, very invested in the place that their character lives and what it looks like and what kind of amenities they have. And and... who staffs it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We got names for all of the help. (laughs) They want to know, like, what is the roof made of? Right. And there are multiple kinds of players who are invested in that. They're the ones who want to know what the roof looks like. 
And there are ones who want to know what is the hardness and hit points of everything on the roof. <laughs> right. How well defended is this? Is it impregnable? Because if it's not. <laughs> yeah. And then how secret is it? Right. Yeah, right. If, if your hideout is really a hangout, mm-hmm. and, you know, and people know if you need to find us, you find us at the Giggling Goat. All right. That's our tavern. That's where we'll be. We have our booth. And if you want to come to us, you find us there. That's great. You better have everybody in that bar on your side. <laughs> yeah. And it's maybe less great if Moriarty knows that, like, you live at 221B Baker Street. Right. <laughs> but either way, right, it gives you opportunities for an adventure. Mm-hmm. Right? Those, are, those are hooks that you can pull at. You know, if you threaten the safety of that safe place, the PCs have to react to that. It's another additional resource and in a way almost another character. Like if you think of the X-Men's mansion, the Batcave, the Justice League's Watchtower, you know, Stark Tower. If you know these characters, then you know where they live and the kinds of things that they're able to do there. Yeah. The same thing applies to ships of any sort yeah. as well. If mm-hmm. if they travel more, you know, their home base might actually be how they travel. Yeah, home base definitely doesn't need to be like a static building. Right. I, I right. love the flying fortress in the sky, the airship. Yeah, so then the dock becomes their sort of home, mm-hmm. and the airship that's docked there becomes their point of protection. So going back a bit to what you said about the giggling goat, in a city, your characters do develop a reputation over time. No matter what they do, for good or ill, mm-hmm. all of their actions have to eventually have consequences throughout the city. Yeah, and I just, oh, this is one of my favorite parts of <laughs> of being a GM is keeping track and, and sort of developing that reputation. Because if you think of a city without the characters in it, you have these natural opposing and interrelated, interconnected relationships, right? So the basic one, think of the Thieves Guild and the Town Guard or the City Watch. Mm-hmm. The Thieves Guild has to make money doing petty crime. The City Watch is charged with preventing petty crime. The tighter you get with a city watch, the less the Thieves' Guild trusts you. The more work you do for the Thieves' Guild, the more of a hazard that the city watch becomes for you. That reputation just works perfectly. But then if you also throw in the nobility, who are very invested in the city watch and really hate the Thieves' Guild because they're usually the targets. If you're trying to infiltrate the nobility, how do you balance those two things? Yeah, I love all the interconnected strings and this web of effect that ripples out from everything that the players do. And it's such a great way to introduce the law of unintended consequences (laughs) because players will think, they'll pick up, oh yeah, if we're tightly aligned to the Thieves Guild, if we're dealing with the mafia, we got to watch out for the cops. But they might not think of what the business community is going to do when the gun dealer in town won't sell you guns because you keep leaving them behind right. and your body count is too high, <laughs> now what do you do? <laughs> You're using my merchandise. That's not the point. Right. <laughs> they are for protection. <laughs> so you either have to knock over the gun dealer or you have to deal with like a little more constraint. And if you knock over the gun dealer, well, I can guarantee he's associated with the Thieves Guild. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> If you have a murder hobo party or a party with murder hobo inclinations, a city is a great place to put them because they really need to dial that back or, well, the entire institution is going to come down on their heads. Exactly. Even the quote unquote bad guys, even for example, the Thieves Guild isn't going to be okay with you like wandering around and killing random people and taking their stuff. Yeah. Think of the Joker and Batman, especially in the Dark Knight. The Joker goes and strong arms all of the crime families in Gotham. And they hate him. <laughs> like He's too much of an agent of chaos. He's mm-hmm. the perfect murder hobo. And they are just as invested as Batman in getting him out of Gotham. Right. 
I think when GMs who are about to run a city campaign, when they're prepping, I think something people often do is they go out and buy like the city source book. Actually, I highly recommend that. I, I really enjoyed using City of Stormreach from Ebron and also Sharn City of Towers. Mm -hmm. And I've played games in Monty Cook's Tolis, which is basically just one giant sprawling city. There's a street level map of the entire freaking thing. It's a great resource. It's really amazing. But I will say it feels very overwhelming when you've got like 250 pages of random NPCs. The temptation is, okay, my PCs go here. Let me look that spot up in the book and figure this out. Read through it ahead of time, but the actions that the PCs take are going to have so many consequences that things are going to change. They should change. And so not everything in that book needs to stay static, you know? Right. Use bits and pieces here and there and, and don't definitely don't feel wedded to the canon of this city because your players are definitely changing it. Oh, yeah. I think of the NPC conflicts that are often presented in those things. If you tip the scales too far one way, one of those NPC loses. Mm -hmm. And now what? <laughs> right? <laughs> the landscape is very different in that area. We talked a little bit about authority, but almost more than any other NPC, the people who are in charge of different areas of the city are the ones that your players need to be most wary of. You know, we talked about the Thieves Guild. In certain places, they are the law. Right. This isn't just legal authority, right? This isn't right. the Duke's direct command. <laughs> this is whoever has the power in the, the area you happen to be in. Just by being people who can affect change, you are stepping on toes. Right. So the party will come to the attention of the authorities. And often it happens very, very early. I mean, how many first-level adventures do you know where it starts with the players stumble upon something and now there's a city guard? Or <laughs> how many adventures get derailed by the first-level adventures become murder hobos and now, <laughs> and now are on the run from the city guard? <laughs> right. PCs are people of special talent, so often they get noticed very quickly by these people in authority and called on to perform special actions or maybe things off the books, maybe by the Thieves Guild, but also maybe by the Duke or people working for him who say, you know what, we need some people not directly tied to us. Yeah, and especially if they announce themselves. <laughs> by like shooting up a bar. Well, there's that, yeah, but also just not hiding who they are, right? If they're openly walking in the city with armor and arms, mm -hmm. then they look like people who mean business. If the average person is running around in robes or, you know, whatever, they're going to stand out. People are going to wonder who they are and they're going to find out. And that's going to include the authorities. Yeah, this is something that I think a lot of players don't take into consideration when they're building or playing a character. Because usually you think, oh, okay, what are we going to do when we're fighting goblins? But when you're walking in the city, can you be subtle? Can your paladin, like, not glow? Right, right. <laughs> is, that, is that sword that's radiating holy light? Is that, is that going to be a problem? When a random shopkeeper is casting detect magic to check the baubles that someone is trying to pawn, does he get blinded by you guys? Right. <laughs> So when dealing with authority, your PCs can be outsiders, right, called in to be advisors, but they could also just be insiders, maybe noble-born. One of my favorite things is having a PC revisit the place where they grew up. Yeah, that's nice when you have that mix. You have somebody who gives them the in into whatever authority network they need to be a part of, right, the noble-born or the established hero, something like that. And then you have his companions. The people who are willing to take up arms with him must also be heroes. Mm -hmm. And so you get both of those dynamics. It's also a really nice opportunity later in a campaign, once your players have actually accomplished something, to, you know, they're perhaps gifted 
with titles by you know, the landed gentry or you know the common people recognize them in some manner right. it's nice for them to be able to walk around and now they have access to echelons of society that they definitely couldn't operate in before even without being high level if you think of becoming bannermen of mm. one of the noble houses right the fact that they can display the crest of the noble house on their tabard is a huge honor and lots of people will give them respect for that and others will be threatened by it it's another great way to reward the pcs it's also an opportunity for pcs to decide that they want to pledge their allegiance to one of these authorities maybe they want to join the city guard right or think of in 3.5 DD, all of the prestige classes that were based around joining some type of organization right. the harpers the, the pathfinder society right <laughs> <laughs> or even now in 5e we have the purple dragon knight Right. And there's always mercenary companies, too. Mm -hmm. Any number of mercenary companies have their own base of operations, their own leadership structure, right? Their own missions that they're trying to carry out, often based in cities, because that's where the money is. Mm -hmm. I would say, as a GM, you should plan, absolutely, to have your players interact somehow in high society. Because it's an opportunity for those set-piece encounters that you just can't do anywhere else. And you can always get the fish out of water. That's right. right. Like, it's great to have somebody who's in and gets it, and then somebody who's the total fish out of water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, if you want to have a red wedding, well, you've got to hobnob with the nobility. Right. If you want to see a masquerade ball scene in your campaign, this is the only time it's going to happen. Yep. Yeah, you've also got things like the coronation of mm -hmm. a new monarch. I've run parades which were fun, yeah. especially if they end up in bloodshed. You know, like a parade <laughs> is a perfect time to attack. <laughs> so much ticker tape. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's lightly obscured. If you think about it, all the arms and armor are on full display for a parade, right? That's right. So no one's going to expect them when they turn coat. <laughs> Where are the ICBMs? Right. Oh, they're in the middle of the road. <laughs> right. <laughs> we paraded our nukes right out in front of everybody <laughs> to show our military might. I can't imagine why the terrorists stole them. <laughs> Every authority figure in the country is here on this one road. Right. <laughs> at a fixed time, at a fixed pace, and they can't move forward or backward. <laughs> That's right. Parading by the Spatian Gate. I wonder what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ravener. Ravener is going to happen. That's right. <laughs> the whole series of books is going to happen because of that. And, of course, cities are the best place for investigation campaigns, which... We talked about at length in episode 20. Whether this is no combat, you are detectives, you're playing a gumshoe type game, or it could be a spy type adventure, like a Night's Black Agents, like we've mentioned, Burn Notice, right? You could just be kind of low-level heroes on the take. <laughs> and then eventually, the city life can be tiring, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to contrast that with some excursions out of the urban element. Right, and sometimes that's as simple as a session that happens in Central Park, you know, or <laughs> or inside the zoo, or, you know, how many times is Batman in a greenhouse because he's fighting poison ivy? Right. It breaks things up a little bit, but it might just be that your party for some reason needs to travel outside the city, likely close by, because in most fantasy settings, right outside the city is basically wilderness. Right. Once you get outside those walls, there's usually not much there. Yeah. You know, in the most advanced parts, it'll be farmland. People will be few and far between. Roads will generally be poorly guarded, that sort of thing. So there's still adventure to be found. Yeah, I mean, think even in the real world, right outside Las Vegas is desert. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Miami, gators in the Everglades. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> 
New York. Uh, well, it's sprawling metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a concrete jungle. <laughs> That's right. You go down. Right. <laughs> this gives an opportunity for your wilderness-focused characters to shine. Although, quite honestly, if you're running an entire city campaign, you're going to want to, at the beginning of that, tell people so that they don't necessarily make a druid who's just specced for survival. Uh, yeah. It's okay to have the fish out of water for a little while. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, you know, some of those set pieces are great for the fish out of water element, but eventually you want players to feel competent, like, or at least equally incompetent. So that can be challenging. So be careful in D&D with the druid, the barbarian, the ranger, um, nature clerics, things like that. They might have a little less to do if they're stuck in an urban environment for too long. Yeah, and if you let people know ahead of time that it is mostly going to be focused on a city and urban environments, then they can make choices that will help mitigate that. You know, so the druid obviously maybe prefers to be a land druid and not, you know, because it's difficult to turn into a bear in the middle of the city and people don't really like that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just setting the expectation. The vermin master druid is still a perfectly viable urban archetype right mm-hmm. and even what what is it in Waterdeep? isn't there like a single grove that's got a druid even there you've got reasons for druids to be around or the ranger i mean how many variants of urban ranger are there in every system of D? with that one you could just flavor those survival checks you know? i mean batman batman is a ranger he yeah yeah well i mean he's got, he's got some ranger he's got two builds <laughs> <laughs> and the barbarian well the vast majority of the barbarians' abilities are actually combat-focused. Right. Or are still useful in the city, like trap sense. Yeah. So really, honestly, the barbarian probably has more fun because you just sort of play up that... You make your whole character about being a fish out of water. The barbarian kind of is a natural fish out of water, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just in cities. It's really in any type of organized, civilized society. The barbarian is going to be a little bit out of place. And, you know... If you're playing a barbarian, that's probably the character that you wanted to play anyway. Uh, it's certainly the only barbarians that I've played. <laughs> it's the fun of being the one who's, you know, stern and terse and quick to anger. And doesn't always understand social conventions, right? In a city, travel is also different. If you think about the entire Lord of the Rings was basically them walking from one place to another place. Yeah. And never returning to the same place. And that definitely doesn't happen in most city-based games. So... A lot of those abilities based around travel, I'm thinking, for example, things that are like, you reduce your travel time by 50% or something like that, usually are not quite as useful here because you're just not going to be away from things for that long. You know, maybe it takes you 10 minutes to get to the next scene. Or even in sprawling metropolises, you know, maybe it's 2D10 times 10 minutes. Right. And keep in mind, in subsystems, you've got the specialist abilities, like the pilot I'm thinking driver sometimes those are varying use in a city yeah right? totally depends on your setting and system right right so a driver might be a wheelman might be valid in a modern setting but a pilot might have very little use in a city unless you're in Coruscant in which case a pilot is excellent extremely useful right. <laughs> in which case a driver probably not that great <laughs> like, so if there are different kind of distinctions in that you you want to keep that in mind too and just give your players a heads up mm-hmm And then other even powerful abilities become less useful, like teleportation. See, I hear you, but I kind of disagree. So it depends on the kind of teleportation, right? So like, for example, teleportation circle. If there's only one circle in the entire city, totally useless. That's true. Yeah. 
But if you're in a large enough city where you have multiple circles mm. or you have areas of restricted access, right? Or if you're talking point-to-point teleportation. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think that's the key of it. A big way to restrict and limit travel in cities is through access. It's not a question of can you get there. Right. The challenge is not finding it. The challenge is am I allowed to enter? Do I have permission to go there? Right. We have the address of the embassy. We right. know exactly where to go. Right. However, I got to get past the guards with the (laughs) AK-47. Exactly. Like I know where City Hall is, so I know where to find the mayor on a Tuesday. But no one is going to let me talk to him. How do I get inside and replace his alcohol with with poison? Yeah. Oh, right. Joker magic. Right. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that, Isha? Um, I think it's the sound of the mayor choking on his scotch. (laughs) We're on an FBI watch list now. (laughs) So it's time to move on to the character creation. I love you, de Blasio. (laughs) Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us, if you can't fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. So this week in The Forge, we're building the shaman. Now, that actually took a lot of discussion about what exactly we mean by shaman. Yeah, and then even more discussion on how to fit it into 5e. <laughs> so there was a third edition shaman that got a Dragon Magazine update to 3.5, but it was really a jack-of-all-trades. Well, it was really terrible at everything. Yeah, give it a splash of every nature bit, and none of it works. Right, and then a little bit of monk thrown in. It's just like, yeah. ugh. The 4E shaman I liked a lot more. It was a leader that had a spirit companion and also a lot of uh, controller abilities. Do you know any shaman in other systems? I think there are some in Savage Worlds. Maybe it's Deadlands. Yeah, Deadlands has one. Mm-hmm. It's tough. I mean, shamans have a lot more bases in the real world than they do yeah. in fantasy. Native Americans had their shamanic culture, Celtic shamans, all that sort of thing, right? So it's a little bit pulled from real life. <laughs> So the things that we sort of figured, okay, here are the things that we're looking for in a fantasy shaman build. It has some features of the cleric, and we considered druid pretty heavily for a while. But I think the distinction that we came down to was if the druid is all about nature and animals and that kind of balance, then the shaman is in tune with nature, but it is much more focused on a community of people. Right. The shaman, I think, is sort of seen as more of a sage communing with nature, using nature to the benefit of a tribe or a community. So usually they can invoke nature spirits or some sort of communion with the spirits of nature. Yeah, and I think there is an orc shaman in the monster manual. Through the magic of editing and timey-wiminess, I have actually just learned that it's a lizard folk shaman. What's the difference? (laughs) So the lizard folk shaman is a shapeshifter. It can turn into a crocodile. It can also summon reptiles. It's like a fifth level spellcaster. So it's a little bit different. What it encapsulates is that it is a leader <laughs> of right. lizard folk, right? The druid's not very leadery for PCs. No, mm-hmm. not at all. So with that in mind, what's the build? Nature cleric fourteen, fey warlock six. Wow, it's really tough to build nature type characters in five E, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because if you're not a druid, you're very limited on what's available to you. And the druid is so synergistic with itself. Mm -hmm. It stacks and builds so well that it's tough to really do anything with it. 
Yeah, it's this conundrum that we run up against, which is just take Druid to 20 because the capstone is so great. Yeah, can I make this a Druid? All right, yes, I could, but let's do something different. Right, right it would be better just to not multi-class out of Druid. Right. You know? Now, if you want to be a Skinwalker Shaman who constantly is changing shape and turning into animals, then you could do Moon Druid 14 instead of Nature Cleric. But that's not the direction that we wanted to go with this. Right. So tell me about this Fey Warlock. <laughs> As sort of an homage to the 4th edition version, but also I think it works really well with real-world examples. We really wanted the Shaman to have access to Conjured Spirits. And you know, one way to do that is either through the Conjuration spells, but for the most part those are terrible and they scale really poorly and mm-hmm. they're a huge investment. The other way is to have a dedicated spirit companion that is always with you and that almost becomes a, another NPC. And the best and most flavorful way to do that is with a Pact of the Chain Warlock. Yeah, the Pact of the Chain gives you an animal companion, or sorry, it gives you a... A familiar, a familiar, strong familiar. Who is upgraded from the standard wizard familiars, right? From the basic five familiar spell. Right, so we just suggest reflavoring Archfey to a, a nature spirit or the nature spirits. Right, right. And then change your pseudo dragon or whatever you prefer it to be to some sort of spirit companion. Or, you know, if you really want, it could be an animal spirit or even an ancestor spirit. Sure. And then your nature cleric gives you a lot of the combat abilities that we're looking for, mm-hmm. right? So nature cleric gets to splash a handful of nature-focused spells as domain spells, but then it also gets... Handy things like its channel divinity allows you to charm beasts. It gets divine strike, which gives it some more punch in combat. Right, and at level 14, you've got 2d8 extra radiant damage. Which is why we stopped at 14. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other piece of this, kind of jumping back to the warlock, are the warlock invocations. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're going to get a lot of flavor out of the warlock into a shaman. Right, so you've got three choices for invocations. And the ones that we suggest choosing from are beast speech, which is speak with animals at will. Beguiling influence, which lets you get deception and persuasion as trained skills. Mask of many faces, if you do kind of want to play a skinwalker, it just lets you cast disguise self at will. Eldritch sight, which is detect magic at will, which is very useful for a sort of diviner type shaman. And then... If you're more martially focused, then fiendish vigor is really great. Reflavor it so it's not, you know, from fiends, call it like nature's armor or something like that. Right. And that's just false life at will, which is 1d4 plus 4 temporary hit points. It's at will, so just keep recasting until you have 8. Right. And then we'll also take the ritual caster feat in order to get some druid ritual spells. You're going to have access to some of these through cleric, but this way you don't need to use up your spell slots for detect poison and disease, purify food and drink animal messenger beast sense locate animals and plants and you know things like commune with nature or water breathing right and then of course as a cleric you've got access to just tons of healing spells which is very useful when you are leading a community yeah and you want to flavor almost all of your cleric spells as some type of small minor ritual the kind of thing where you're taking a piece of grass and sprinkling it over or rubbing dirt on a wound to create a solve that sort of thing yeah think aragorn using king's foil to make a healing poultice those sorts of things because while you are nominally a cleric at least in the game mechanics we highly recommend flavoring it so that you're not actually worshiping a god or even a god of nature but that you are actually worshiping nature or even not even worshiping just communing with it communing with right so your guiding spirit is something like the spirit of the bear 
or spirit of the fox, mm-hmm. right? You you have that animal that you sort of connect with that kind of informs you. I think this would be a great character to lead a band of totem barbarians. Yeah, exactly. So what's your shaman's backstory? I think this would be a great character to lead a tribe of totem barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> so why does he leave his tribe of totem barbarians to join this crazy adventuring party? So I like the idea of if you can get another player to do this is that it's tandem characters. Okay. One is the shaman. And one is and the barbarian. Yeah, the, exactly. Okay. Uh, and they travel together. Probably, I think, not because they want to, but because they have to. Or, mm, yeah, because they have to. And then either it's the shaman who has been sort of sent out. Like we talked about last week, that sometimes Morden calls a dwarf cleric and says, you know what? The rest of the world needs the help of the dwarves. I'm sending you on a mission. Right. I think a shaman who gets all of these divination spells uh, has foreseen some sort of doom that should be prevented. And ah, so okay. travels out. And of course, one of the barbarians must come along as a bodyguard okay interesting i like that or on the flip side the barbarian warrior is sent out you know as a champion and the shaman must come to make sure that he is not corrupted by the outside oh okay all right i like that too i was gonna focus more on the animal companion piece Hmm. uh yeah i mean the familiar familiar right but the spirit companion as almost the shaman's leader, right? Mm. So rather than the familiar working for the shaman, the shaman is actually working for the familiar. So the familiar has led the shaman on this quest, has determined that it's important for him to follow this path, that nature must be protected somewhere, that these people must be made to understand, whatever it is, right? And you can you can almost play up the kind of kookiness. You can let that be sort of a private element. That like maybe Eddie it, Murphy in Mulan, the little dragon. The little dragon, I forget yeah. his name. Yeah, kind of like that. Mushu, it, it was Mushu. It was Mushu, yeah. <laughs> but the other players don't necessarily need to know that you're following him, right? You could just kind of be talking to yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, like, the muttering amongst yourself, they, they won't fully trust you, right? I kind of like that element, but, like, you've got good guidance, right? And that's a great way for the DM to get involved mm-hmm. with giving a little extra guidance to the party. Right. Uh, GMs, because this is a class feature, don't turn it against the player. Don't be a dick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. So we do actually have a review on Stitcher. So this is Love the Tips and Tricks, five stars from Dorky Chef. I've only recently started listening to the podcast. I started with the character advancement episode, and as a DM, it was really great. I have only 31 more episodes to listen to. Well, I guess call it 32 now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think our subhead should be tips and tricks. Uh, maybe, cause... yeah. <laughs> that is Take a, that as you will. <laughs> that is a recurring theme in the reviews, right? <laughs> All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about how we prep for a session. We're actually going to walk you through prepping for one particular session. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building an adventurous noble. Well, that's it for episode 36 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.